Welcome, fam. This is Courtney Russell Jr., and I'm here with my co-host, Emily Brocker. Welcome to Humanize. We are two Americans with totally different backgrounds and life experiences. We're coming together on this podcast to dive right at the heart of the three things that shut down tough conversations about race, culture, power, and ego. The stories you are about to hear are meant to humanize those deeply involved in social justice. Welcome to the work, y'all. Let's get it. Welcome to another episode of Humanize. I just wanted to start off with a bit of disclaimer, which is something that we like to put at the beginning of our episodes, which is to say, you know, Courtney and I are engaging in these really honest conversations, and we're doing that because of the relationship we have established and also the invitation that we have both extended to each other to ask pretty pointed and personal questions. Um, and we like to put that disclaimer because we don't want anyone to walk away with a sense that, you know, you can just walk up to someone of a race that's different from yours and just start asking them kind of intense questions about their experience or asking them to explain their experience. So we just wanted to start off episode with that. And today we're going to take a moment to introduce ourselves and how we ended up on this podcast. And uh, yeah, so that's what this episode is. It's basically get to know us episode. <laughs> so Courtney, help yeah. me get to know you. Would love just to to hear you have an amazing, amazing story. Um, and so can you just kind of let our listeners in on oh. where you're from, how you got to where you are now? Um, I am from Atlantic, Georgia, son of immigrants, first one born in America from my, and my family, my immediate family. And now after that, most of my family is now in Atlantic, Georgia. I grew up in inner city, Atlanta on the east side, zone six. If anybody listening is from Atlanta, it's zone six. They know exactly <laughs> what that is. And grew up there. It was even we were really poor. However, we were um, rich with love and we valued education and my, my parents really had the immigrant mentality that you got to America, you're here, and now let's make a living for not only ourselves, but um, our family. And so my father had three jobs. It would have been three, four jobs while I was growing up at a time. Sometimes it would be two weeks um, at the time where I wouldn't see him. My mom, she did a lot of jobs in Atlanta. She drove the public transportation. She drove the public bus. Um, she was a school teacher. She worked in mental health. Um, and so both of them were really hard workers. And um, they they found, still found time to make sure that me and my little sister were taken care of. And yeah, and so I think just that, that, that strong family structure it makes it makes a huge difference in um, your outcome. Even though I kind of veered off the path that they wanted me in the beginning, I think that strong family structure is what kind of always kept me grounded and knowing that I had to do something else than what was prevalent in my community. You know, mm -hmm. and so even with individuals that I grew up with, I was always different just because of that. So I I, I am really blessed. And I appreciate my family for the the struggle and um, the hard love that they gave me 
because it may be who I am today. What was it that was prevalent in your community for folks who don't know what Atlanta's um, like or the part of Atlanta? Um, well, when I was growing up, um, crime, you know, <laughs> prostitution. If anyone knows Atlanta, sex trade is really big, and it was big back oh. then. Too, you know, um, uh-huh. um, drugs was was huge. Um, just just that t- type of in, um, environment that you grew up with makes you view life in a different way. And when I wasn't at home, you just had to make do. You grew up with a certain mentality, and then. When I was back home, you know, it was laughing, love, you know, hope, you know, and things of that nature. And so it was it was always a tension between nurture versus environment, you know. Mm. Um, and so, like, I was always I always had to live two lives. Yeah. So mm. I um, and it was more about survival, too. You know, I've never I've never been a, the biggest person in my community. And so, uh, like I said, anyone knows me, I had to use my mind a lot. Like physically um, the biggest person. Biggest, big, exactly. I, I always had to use my mind. So survival was always something that was, was priority. However, at home, we didn't have to live like that. So just mm-hmm. always jumping in and out of those um, worlds was something that I had to do in my life. What do you think? I'm just going to, I know you have a lot more to your story. I'm just going to ask you, what do you think is something that you learned from kind of those street smarts that like really still serves you today? I mean, entrepreneurship starts started for, for me and most of the people in the community that I come from back then. You know, you, you have to be tenacious. You have to be kind of delusional to think. That, what do you mean? Who am I talking to now? <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. No, you that that's true. You you have to think that you can make a difference when so many people have tried and failed. You know, right, and, right, yeah. And so it's, it's this this thing about entrepreneurship. Everybody wants to be one, but but no one really wants no one really wants to do the work it takes to be uh a, you know like a Steve Jobs or a um Elon Musk, you know, uh, oh, yeah, Bill yeah. Gates, you know, all these individuals who are who are top of their game, they had to take delusional crazy type of sacrifices to get the the um the prominence that they have today and so when mm-hmm. you are an entrepreneur no matter what you're selling it has to you you, you kind of have to be delusional to think that what you got moving is what's going to take you out of your situation and set you and your family up for, for mm-hmm. life you know mm-hmm. so that mm-hmm. that's what it taught me um not to look at my present day circumstances but always dream always be creative and thought always smile and laugh and always use humor as a form of therapy so that you can you can make it to another day you know sure. um, yeah. people in my community don't run to get psychiatric um, help you know, and, and, <laughs> that's and, not the first go-to <laughs> no nah, that's not the go-to you know you go to that you like you know, you're weak you're crazy and so mental illness is is rampant and so, like, mm. I always joke with my business partner says, all mental illness ain't bad. You know, like, I, I know I got some kind of mental illness in me right now. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and so it's just, it's very, it, it's just, like I said, I always have to make sure that I, I keep smiling and laughing along mm-hmm. this path. Because when I stop smiling and laughing, I mean, I, I honestly feel like it's, I'm about to die, you know. And so I yeah. feel like that keeps me alive, that keeps me going, that keeps me motivated. 
to just smile and, and laugh and crack jokes and um, and find the humor in, in, in what, what I do. And for folks who are just getting to know Courtney, this is something that's just amazing uh, about him is his ability to keep hope. You mean, it's a really... Uh, it totally inspiring thing, and it's something it drew me drew me to to work with you because I'm like I need to be, be around more people who have hope. I need to be more, around more delusional people, basically. <laughs> so that should be the name so, of our our podcast. <laughs> work with the, the delusional, the delusional. <laughs> yeah. So keep bringing me along. You so you had this really warm upbringing and then in your family and at home and kind of these really tough conditions um, outside your home. So yeah, keep, keep bringing me along your story. Yeah. And a lot of times people use, especially there's so many stories of, of people who come from circumstances that myself, uh, my business partner and people I grew up with come from and make it. And, and they use that as a platform toward their success. I really don't like focusing on uh, the past that it took me to get here. I really love focusing on what I'm doing now to elevate others so that we all can uh, move towards progression together, you know? And so mm-hmm. I mm-hmm. could tell you about, you know, the, the, the cold nights, hungry, hungry days, hungry nights, doing whatever it takes to survive. But those, those stories are, are, are plenty. You know, if you want to hear that, you could, easily easily google that but i want to be different in fact that i i'm I'm, we smile we 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 laugh we use Mm -hmm. like you said hope to to get through um and so the days when i was homeless i would i would be laughing to myself in my car you know um (laughs) seriously seriously amazing the days when i was the most loneliest uh, i would look at find a pet before jet, you know, like find some kind of other pet, whether it's a, a pet, something like a cat that that's in the alley, like I'm just uh-huh. chilling with or just find something or another person to talk to and just right. talk about life, you know, because we need connection as people. And that's what I found before mm-hmm. med school, while in med school and kind of put me on this path is I love connection. I love yeah. People. I love the insanity of, of, of poverty is a weird place to find authentic love, you know, because mm. when you have nothing and someone shows you love and you receive love back from that person, you a lot of times I really appreciate that, you know, and mm-hmm. so just meeting somebody where they are and then walking down the road to progression and it's the, the, towards escaping poverty. That means so much to me, man. Like you couldn't pay me enough. Like I, I can't do anything else. And, mm-hmm. I, um, and so while I was in medical school, I appreciate. Well, everything. we'll back up for a second. Cause I don't uh, think our listeners know what is this decision to go to medical school? How did this happen? Oh, wow. <laughs> we um, are talking to a doctor here, folks. Um, <laughs> Uh, my mom, I was, I was lost, you know, making really bad decisions. And my mom signed me, like, kind of signed me up and asked, like, what do you want? Would you be a doctor? And I'm like, nah, I don't want to work that hard, you know? And she kept coming at me and coming at me and coming at me. I said, all right, mom, I'll do it. You know, I, if, if, if I get accepted, I'll do it. Why did I say that? 
because she already put it through. <laughs> and then for some reason, they hit me back and said I had enough credits in science to get um, an entrance into the pre, a pre-med program. And so if I had passed an intense pre-med course, they would accept me into a medical school. Wow. And so I said, all right, whatever. Well, I, I tried out. All right, whatever. I yeah. mean, like this is something that people spend a lot of their life yeah. focused on. Yeah, exactly. Whatever. This tells exactly. you a bit about Courtney's ability to, no. to manifest and just do what he wants to do. That's my mother. That's obvious. She 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 did that, you know. And okay. And the closer it came for me to catch that flight to med school, like I was getting afraid, you know, because I I never left Atlanta besides going to see visit my grandparents. And and so I, I got I was afraid. And and where was your med school? In the is an American school, but the we do two years in the Caribbean. Um, okay. And then we did our, I did my clinical sciences in Atlanta and Chicago and um, okay. primarily Atlanta, Chicago. And so when she signed me up and like I said, the closer the date came, um, my father had other intentions for me. He wanted mm-hmm. me to work with his business and this and that. And, and I had made, again, a lot of bad decisions and me and him were at odds. And so um me and my father were really close. You know, that was, that was my guy, you know, like growing uh-huh. up, he was my idol. He was, he's my, my entrepreneur. He taught me everything I knew about tenacity and, and the, the meaning of a, of a name and my last name and so much. And the Russell name should be powerful. And if it's not, you, you, you wasted your time. There was no room for, for not being the greatest at whatever I did, you know? Mm-hmm. And so he put that in me. So we kind of fell out when I went to medical school because he felt like I was running away. Mm. And so um, I cried the whole way on the flight. It must have been so hard. To when I left him, you know, because like he, it, it, me and him just stopped crying, like stopped talking. And mm. so if if anyone knows the Caribbean culture, the what the father says goes, you know. And so mm. me and my mom, um, and we're close. We stopped talking a lot. Me and my sister, we're close. We stopped talking. Um, uh, so for the first two years of school, I were, uh, like, I was estranged from my family. And so I had, a, I mean, doing that while being under all the stress of school. Ugh. Yeah. It, it was a lot, you know, it, that is a uh, lot. I've always been alone, you know, like, mm. but I think that loneliness and that solitude had to happen for someone like me to really focus up and not be comfortable because the discomfort mm. kind of builds you in a certain way that mm-hmm. it makes you stronger and it shows you if you're built for what you say you're built, you want to do. Uh-huh. Um, like I said earlier, people want to be entrepreneurs until they see the process it takes to become one, a successful mm-hmm. one, an iconic one, you know? And mm-hmm. for the first two years, that was the hardest time of my life, you know, just doing whatever it took to, to um, pay tuition, to eat, to live, you know, I'm in school with people who are rich and wealthy from just want a new career change. You know, I, my, a great friend of mine came from Cornell, um, individuals there from, were from Harvard, Yale, Ivy League schools, just want to change um, the career, you know, mm-hmm. wanted to become doctors. And so you have me who I, 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 I'm just trying to figure it out. I was, mm-hmm. I, I was underdog, you know, and so I felt like mm-hmm. I had something to prove. So it went from me crying over my father to me being angry, you know, and be, mm. be like, 
I, you know what? I got something to prove. Right. I got I to gotta show that I'm relevant here. I have to show that I belong here. And I don't care who I step over to, to make it. And so I mm-hmm. became really angry, you know, really manipulative. And again, use the same mentality when I was in Atlanta to, 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 to succeed because there was no way out for me. There was no mm-hmm. going back to a family because now I was on my own. So I had to figure it out. Mm-hmm. And thank God that I did. You know, I, 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 I found um, a husband and wife who are, I'm, I'm still like, that's my family. Now they, we, we all went to med school together okay. and, and um, they helped me through. They taught me how to study. They said, you can mm. mentally, you can do it, but being a doctor is not about being smart. It's about knowing how to, to, to take an exam, how to play the game and how to study. And I was like, right. all right, you know? Right. And, and so as we, as I, when I came back to America to start my clinical sciences, I couldn't go home. So I was literally homeless while in, like in, in medical school and, sleeping in my car, dressing for my car, putting my white coat and going into a hospital for my car was, um, was exactly what I needed. I don't even, I, I, I tell people all the time, like, please don't feel sorry for me because if I had it easily, I would never have become Dr. Russell. I would all have been Courtney. Um, Mm -mm. and I would have failed, you know, I needed that type of pressure to, to make any type of success for myself. Mm -hmm. And now today is lonely. It's a lonely experience. It's a lonely existence to be me because I'm always thinking about what next, what next, what next. And -hmm. unless you are delusional like me and you think like I do, which is, is rare, you know, um, the relationships are hard to come, come by. Mm -hmm. Whether you're talking about romantic relationships, friend relationships and things like that, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. no one feels safe with someone who's always thinking about tomorrow and just cannot accept right now mm-hmm. and being the present, you know, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and taking on this mantle to dismantle poverty is see people talk about that a lot, you know, but I take it to the point where it, it has to be done and it has to be done in a way that it actually works this time. You know, many people have, have done it and not understand that it's a mindset. Poverty is a mindset. It's not as, it's, it's not about money. It's mm-hmm. not about um, the houses, the cars you have. It's about, the mindset of a tomorrow, the mindset that I matter, the mindset that I'm seeing, the mindset that I can make decisions about life. Um, right. That- I remember hearing um, that they're developing a like an index or a measure of the like how developed a country is based on if you ask the young girls what their dream is, whether they can answer that question or not. Yeah. Because there's many places where it's too much to even dream about a tomorrow and especially for girls. So I, I, yeah, it just kind of overlaps with what you're saying with the the mindset as tomorrow. What was, what was the pivot point for you? You, So you graduated from med school Mm -hmm. and then, and then what happened? Wow. I was in hospital, you know, and, um, going through the motions, seeing patients, loving it, you know, honestly. And I, sometimes I even miss, that 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 pressure to to show what you know you know mm-hmm. um but i always felt like kind of incarcerated if that made mm-hmm. like i always felt this is not what i'm supposed to be doing like mm-hmm. 
I would always end up in bad side of towns with a white coat on, talking to people on the and and they're in the community, and they're like, "Yo, you're a doctor now. Why are you doing this?" And I'm like, yeah. I, "These are my people." You know, like this is this uh-huh. is what I know. This is what this is how I feel safest. I don't feel safe in suburbia. I don't feel safe mm-hmm. when there are not people that I can talk to and 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 get the story and get perspectives and show my perspective and hope we can come to some kind of commonality and 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 walk towards progression together. Like I don't want to do anything for people. I want to do things with people. Mm-hmm. And that's and 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 so at the end of the day. The, the tipping point to stop being in a hospital and start like taking entrepreneurship to a level of escape and to helping others escape poverty. And, and it was just seeing the um, disparity that was existing in healthcare, mm-hmm. going into a bank, looking at someone who like, if I went into a bank with my scrubs on, I got a different type of respect versus someone who was there, you know, and like I, at, at a certain point, I've ha- I had enough. Mm-hmm. So I said, like, you know what, I, I'm, I think I'm, I, I need to do something else. So I started speaking, and homeless shelters and anywhere else in Atlanta that would allow me to talk about poverty, and healthcare, poverty, and entrepreneurship, poverty, and the escaping poverty, and any anything I could do, you know, and and so. At that same time, too, I was studying for my boards and I would line individuals up in a homeless shelter and try to how I study best is association. That's how I learned. Mm-hmm. Right. And so I would have a they will bring their bag of drugs to me and I would say, OK, this drug is for this. This is for this. And if I couldn't answer that, I would write it down and then like obsess about it and study it at night. And that's how I studied and, and passed my board exams. And mm-hmm. so, and, and then I, I quickly saw that this is what I want to do for my life. Mm-hmm. I want to do this for the rest of my life. And I just didn't know until I met my business partner, we, I was speaking and he asked me, he said, Hey, Courtney, can I speak? I passed him the mic and I said, this is it. You know? I, I felt, mm-hmm. you, you know, when you feel like I can't do anything else, mm-hmm. I, I mm-hmm. felt like it, he, he's, <laughs> It, it was just a different thing. You know, I had never met someone that I was in awe of like, like him. And What's his name? David Roman, you know? Okay. And so what do you, what do you, what do you guys do together? And um, we, we own both our, our, the companies, we up in H2H2. Um, we just really tapping into culture and tapping into ways to elevate our community, the community we come from. So we have a we have a clothing line. Um, we're working on a record label. We speak in schools, colleges, um, universities across the country. We've done that. Eventually, I want to go into banking. I want to create a for-profit hospital um, that that has a a home for individuals that have felonies, you know, and 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 records and things of that because there's so much talent in the community mm. that we come from. But they had to make decisions that a lot of us didn't have to make. And right. so if you had to take care of your family and you had to sell some drugs, that's not even a thought. Like my daughter can't cry for a whole week because she's starving when I know I can get some money from right. just selling some drugs. Like that's not that's not even a, a question. And so if they get wrapped up in the in, um, in the system, the criminal justice system, 
now they're excluded from ever becoming doctors, lawyers, um, and things of that nature, getting sustainable jobs, and the cycle continues, you know? And so I want We Up to be a place that can give you second chances to those individuals who really want that escape, you know? And yeah. so yeah. Um, that, and then A2H2 is the nonprofit that we own where we, we offer health insurance mobile, mobily to communities in need. You know, and so we mm-hmm. actually go into the community. We set up, they have practicing um, healthcare providers and they get primary care, you know, and so they mm-hmm. now can receive the type of healthcare that can save your life because you can't escape poverty if your health is, is horrible, you know. And so yeah. if you ask Steve Jobs the last days of his life when he was battling pancreatic cancer, he would have sold Apple for $2 if he could have a good pancreas, you mm. know. And so, mm-hmm. you know, and and so that's just, and A2H2, too, we speak on health and, and the parallels of health and poverty. And so everything we yeah. do is focused on the escape of poverty, Yeah, <laughs> just in different and, avenues. And we'll put the the links to your two companies in the show notes if so people can explore that if they want to, to learn more. And so how did, how did you end up here today talking with me on this podcast? Man. That's crazy. I um I work I I do I do a lot of work in a community and I ended up at Eagle Rock School, you know, and it's been such a an amazing thing in Essence Park, um, Colorado, Colorado. yeah, mm-hmm. and, and working there with students and they oh man like to love students that are not your blood as if they were is a different mm-hmm. feeling and it, and it keeps me coming back it wakes me up excited every day i owe eagle rock so much you know and mm-hmm. um from now until i'm no longer working there eagle rock will definitely be a place of, of of hope and um and love and and amazing feelings of joy just to, to talk about it um and so me it was a guy named chris lamar and we were talking about um poverty and we're talking about things of that nature and he introduced me to this this keynote speaker (laughs) Emily Brock yes so we go down to Boulder one day and I go in I was like whoo yeah this is gonna be funny she's super white I don't I'm gonna I'm trying to see what (laughs) what are we gonna say that's just kind of white just the real yoga (laughs) doing like (laughs) east coast up you know new england puritanical yeah exactly (laughs) exactly and so but it was something that um like as we left i said yo i think me and her gonna gonna find a way to work together because she's she's fired up and um hopefully we can and then when we left everything just one thing happened after another and um me and chris chris just had to focus on his family yeah, this and, is when the pandemic hit. Yeah, when the pandemic uh-huh. hit. And and for a while, no one really knew what we were going to do. You know, we definitely couldn't have continued doing that just because we had to see how everything panned out. And then the blessed day, man, Emily called me and she said, hey, let's let's do something. And you, yo, I don't <laughs> think you, we were on the phone, so you couldn't have seen me, but I was jumping. I was like, yo, this, <laughs> okay, cool. Cause I love new, I love new things. I love contradictions. I love, uh-huh. um, I'm, I'm catching people's eye with, with certain, I, 
when we if 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 we get a chance to speak past post COVID and we go into a, a, a crowd of people and start talking, just our perspectives, you know, are going to mm-hmm. bring people to the room. You know, mm-hmm. it's so much people don't go to concerts just because a per- person has a good voice. They go because they have something they want to see. Like what's mm-hmm. going to take to bring bring asses to the seats, you know? Mm-hmm. And we have mm-hmm. that, you know, and um I was really motivated and excited. And ever since then, every conversation, um, I know like just how guarded you are and how ready <laughs> and all all the, that's ready to go. I am is just a great um a yin and a yang to what we're trying Courtney, to do. Courtney is all gas. I am all brakes. Slow I, I down. Yeah. Let's think about this. This exactly. tiny line out of our logo is a little out of place. Let me upset. Exactly. <laughs> oh, that's that's good. David's the same way. David thinks a lot, you know. He uh-huh. he's very cerebral. He's like, hey, hey, that sounds good, but hold up, hold up, hold up, hold up. You know, and mm-hmm. so both people that are in my life doing these projects and this working and this and that, it's just a, a great thing. So being here at this moment to me is a blessing. You know, I feel mm-hmm. like I'm, I'm a lot has happened in my life with coronavirus and personally and things. And I could have, I definitely could have crumbled and um, just, just been crying in my room and this and that, but just knowing that I had a why to 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 wake up and to work and to continue pushing this this dream of um, progression and mm-hmm. empowerment and um, escaping poverty and pushing a conversation and talking to individuals who don't look like me with people who don't look like me towards progression and dismantling white suppression. I couldn't ask for a better job, you know, and so mm-hmm. I feel like I'm not mm-hmm. working every day we work. Yeah, it's super fun to collaborate with you. I appreciate you. Appreciate you. Appreciate what you you bring and what you're willing to put up with with me. <laughs> so thank you. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> so now are we are we gonna are we gonna start a your autobiography now? <laughs> All right, let's open the next book. <laughs> <laughs> Chapter two. Yeah. Chapter two. The white girl. No, <laughs> you a lot more than that, yo. You a lot more than that. I, uh, I, I just have like the, the starting the question, like where, where the hell you come from? Like what, <laughs> what makes you you? What, what makes let's me go. me? Uh huh. Well, let's see. Um, so starting back before I was even born, because, you know, I think both of us are in this room with all of our ancestors and all of our history. So we wouldn't have this conversation without them. I think I'm about like seventh generation American of like German and, and Scottish and Irish descent. Um, a lot of Quakers in my family, Pennsylvania Quakers. But I don't know a ton. I don't know a ton about my my history. Um and uh, I know that my mom and dad's family ended up in Massachusetts, and that's where I grew up. Um, grew up in the suburbs of Boston and going to private school my whole life, going to boarding school, prep school, going to Ivy League college. Um, you know, that's that's kind of my my world, emotionally restrained, you know, obsessed with doing things as best as possible and and being good, being a good 
person, you know, like that's so much of my upbringing. How do you be a good person? For me, a lot of my, my life, uh, it was defined by my mom getting cancer when I was, I think, uh, eight or nine. And then she was sick for seven years. So that was, you know, a huge part of my life. And a lot of the memories that kind of bubble up for me is, those years of um, her sick in bed and eventually yeah. passing when I was about 13. And she had, a, you know, so much that she passed on to me around the love of travel and being in other countries, as well as being of service to, to people. She was a stay-at-home mom and she would volunteer at um, a homeless shelter in Boston. And she would tell me about going down to the South in the sixties to help people sign up and register to vote. And she was involved in civil rights and uh, yeah. And the way that I kind of coped with losing her was to just kind of buck up and be on my own and, and not ask anyone for help and not admit that I was, you know, having a tough time for years and years, about a decade. (laughs) And during that time of, um, kind of dealing with things, I just started traveling a lot. And that was an amazing, uh, you know, part of my, uh, through my mid thirties, basically just doing a lot of travel and, um, mostly to remote parts, the developing world. And during that time, just really, you know, first of all, came into contact with my privilege of being an American. And then it slowly became into, you know, as a more in the States, like the privilege of being a white person, the privilege of being cisgendered, the privilege of all these different things. And uh, yeah, eventually, you know, just really finding healing again, like through community, you know, through really connecting with people and, um, finding a, a sense of belonging after losing my mom at a young age, like just needing that sense of belonging again in community. And so I just got really focused around the question of like, what what breaks us apart when we're trying to work together on things? Like when I looked at, you know, international development, I traveled to, you know, I'd be in Nepal or I'd be in Morocco or I'd be in Senegal and listening to Western volunteers just just complaining about the local population, right? Like the Senegalese are to- so hard to work with, or like the Nepalese are so hard to work with. And then I'd listen to the Nepalese, and they'd be like, "Ah, oh, those Westerners are so hard to work with. Like it's so frustrating." Like, and I'm like, if we can't like work together when we're trying to address human trafficking or trying to get safe water to communities, how are we going to work together when we have to deal with? land rights and oil and, you know, different, bigger, bigger issues. So I became just really hyper-focused on intercultural communication and helping individuals make better relationships. Um, And that went and I got two master's degrees in topics related to culture and communication and in anthropology really focused on, you know, how do we we call it the subaltern voice. How do we amplify the marginalized voices? How do we learn from the marginalized populations and create a new history, create a new telling of history and do research with, you know, it's not do research on someone. How do you do research with someone? So I spent three months in Colombia with moms that were single moms displaced by the armed conflict there 
just exploring how they accessed um, resources when they got to the capital, how they how they dealt with all the fear and the lack of support of lack of social network there. Yeah, and then that fed into working with um, with right now, you know, working with corporate groups around creating more psychological safety and creating places where people can have tough conversations like conversations about race really important conversations about social justice and anti-racism and then also working with nonprofits around outreach to diverse communities like how do you learn about the different cultures how do you access the right person how do you build trust so the questions of trust and safety are what i i really focus on yeah that's that's amazing when do you I always want to know, like, when white people go into, like, this kind of work that we're, me and you are doing right now, what mm-hmm. is the impetus of that? Like, what made you very interested in the in social determinants, social dynamics, um, right. working in, in, in and with poverty and, and understanding the system, like, the systemic problems that we have in this country? What what's What's, like, spurred that in you? I mean, I think there are a few different things, different competing parts. Um, I mean, one is just seeing like, I mean, basically it's unfair, right? Like it just feels unfair. Like, why would I, why would I, why should I be able to feel confident in getting good healthcare and someone else shouldn't, you know, why do I, it, it just literally keeps me up at night that like a black mother fearing for her son's life on a daily basis, like is, it's just too, it's too much. It's like, I fear for my kid's life on a daily basis because of my own anxiety about just random scenarios. I, I think up in my head. And then this all like, just like the witnessing of what's going on, I feel like it leads into this like slow, like, oh, this is, this is reality. And I'm not, I've been conditioned not to live in reality. I've been conditioned to only see this little sliver and, and strip of reality, which is, you know, a whiteness of a world with ease, a world with, you know, that I have opportunities and, and access. And so that combines with just seeing the injustice. And I think, you know, I have to be honest how it also, I think there's a part of it that combines too with like wanting to get it right, you know, like wanting to, wanting to be on the right side of, of history of like, you know, I, I think I, I struggle at times with the like white exceptionalism of like, oh, maybe I'm, I'm one of the good ones, you know? And then I realized that that's just caught up in the story of like, how I was raised to try to be good, but yeah. I then you, you need to go into like dismantling, like, well, being racist doesn't mean you're a bad person, it just means that you're probably a person in the United States. Um, and so I don't know, it's like a lot of different things that are combined, and the closer I get to it, like through uh-huh. talking to people, through reading accounts, like it just, uh, makes me more and more pissed off and then i then i see more how people turn away and quote you know don't have time like yeah. don't i don't have time to focus on this right now there's so many other things that are happening um yeah. 
So I don't think that's like a really clear answer. It's a pretty complex and murky answer, but it's like, yeah, there's lots of parts of me that feel differently about it, but it all points towards like, let's keep moving ahead. I don't know what that is. Like, I don't, I don't actually know what you and I will be creating, but I don't want to stay silent out of fear of getting it wrong because that's totally in there. I've kind of had to like accept like, well, wow, some people are going to listen to me on this podcast and be like, that girl has it totally wrong. And that's hard for me to (laughs) embrace, but I don't want to stay silent and keep my voice out of a conversation where it could be useful to to creating something. Um, And I know that's something I've talked with you about. It's just kind of like, I don't know where my voice is in this conversation, but I try to keep going. That is the most attractive thing about this podcast for me is the the vulnerability of both of us because if you know anything about people of color they don't like other people in their business you know a lot of times people what we say you put on meaning that you you live in a reality an instagram reality where you only post things that look good about your life you Mm -hmm. know and so the vulnerability that you have and you're bringing knowing that it doesn't make you wrong because you benefit from a racist system. Mm-hmm. It makes you wrong if, because you benefit from a racist system, you're not able to see how you're benefiting and you're not willing to, to push, the, push your benefit and, and use your benefit as a way for others to benefit. That is, if, if you set silent like that and complicit, then you, are, you would be wrong, you know? So mm-hmm. you're willing to be wrong with this, this question of, of racial like dismantling systems of oppression to me that's very powerful you know that's mm-hmm. people a lot of people don't want to walk down that they don't want to be wrong i mean mm-hmm. we have a president right now that doesn't want to admit defeat you right. know and then so i think that i was talking to somebody earlier i think that is like symbolic of like systemic like like racist systems mm-hmm. i hear all the time that Yo, there y'all go again, talking about systemic racism. There is not a such thing. Blacks say there is not such thing as, as systemic racism. Whites say there's not such thing as systemic racism. And I always asked them, I said, you believe that is it it's so easy to say there's no systemic racism and try to make it seem as though everyone can pull themselves up and everyone lives in America and and you could look at other places in the world. And America's the best, but we have a constitution that in print says that all people are created equal in print. Right. <laughs> right. So those countries don't have that. They make it very clear. <laughs> Yo, women can't do nothing. Men can do this. You, if you're not this SES, you're not going to do this. Like they make mm-hmm. it very clear where they stand. And so right. the hypocrisy of the constitution is what makes America kind of like, a, a place where we got to push it, push it forward. That's what. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, what, what's coming up for me, just like, as we, we wrap up here, um, is, uh, like, I think that you and I are both really interested in, in safety in people feeling safe and being safe through community, through having access to whatever they need to the, you know, having those basic rights. And I think that what drew me to 
our collaboration here um, is the ways in which we both need each other to be safe. And like, I need you to be by my side, to, to take risks, to like put myself out there. I, I kind of feel like I need someone I trust to have my back. And I, I remember when we were first talking about doing in-person trainings, you were like, I need you as a white woman to be there so that when I walk into a room, everyone doesn't just like shut down, you know, and feel afraid of me, like all the white people. And I think it's a, I think I, part of my hope is that our collaboration is a metaphor of the way forward, which is, it's not just, you know, I think (laughs) it's, yeah, it's a collaboration, you know, it's, it's a system where people have each other back. And in, in that safety, we can take steps forward that feel uncomfortable and feel you know, like, I don't know if this is the stuff that goes off the cliff, but, <laughs> but Courtney's there with me and he's going to try to throw down a rope. <laughs> You'll figure so, it out. Uh, <laughs> we'll figure it out. Yeah. Um, so yeah, there's that need. Uh, yeah. I, for me, often the conversation just comes back to safety and working through the discomfort that's absolutely necessary to disrupt what we have now because it needs to be disrupted and it's not going to be disrupted from a place of comfort, but that discomfort feels less when people have our back. Mm. You know? So you just, you, you preach it now. You turn it to a baptism. <laughs> <laughs> yes, church. Yes. That's what I needed you to do after that. You dropped the bike. You know, that was, <laughs> that's a perfect way to, to, to start the wrap this up. Okay. So wrapping it up. That's us. You're going to learn a lot more from us in terms of the way that we interact and and so forth throughout the next um, our next few seasons. And uh, thank you for joining us. Yes, appreciate you for being on this journey with us. Um, this is the work. This is it. Um, get ready for awesome conversations, awesome perspectives, um, and just being real about our fears and our hopes and our desires towards um, dismantling systems of oppression. Um, Humanize. Thank you. Thanks for joining us on this episode of Humanize. Please remember to like and subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss an episode. Join us on Instagram or Facebook to continue this conversation at The Humanize Podcast. Let us know if you want to learn more about the professional trainings we offer. And of course, tune in next time as we continue the work. Thank you and much love.